Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep. Well, welcome. I hope, I believe, you're in the right place. Because Sleep With Me is proud to present Game of Thrones. The Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. So we do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights and press play. We'll do the rest. And by the rest, I mean, uh, like, basically, what I'm going to do is talk about a Game of Thrones episode. Go on some tangents. You know, I'm going to break down, go through the episode. I'm going to talk about stuff that you know, caught my attention. But also, the reason, how does it work? Why does it work is probably a better question. Why does it work? Not 100% positive. How does it work? We create a safe place. Where you can set aside whatever's been, you know, tossing and turning you. If it's mental, it could be physical. But it's got to go through the gray matter normally. And normally up in that gray matter area, it gets, you know, there's a limbic stuff. And there's, according, uh, there's like some uh, medulla oblongata thing related to red lizard brains, survival instinct type stuff. Simeon something. So that stuff, it gets you all twisted. It's not made for restful sleep. It's made for, you know, keeping you alert out on the uh, plains, you, you know, as a hunter-gatherer. But you're not, you know, you got similar stuff going on tomorrow, hunter-gatherer type stuff. So that's why you're feeling a little pressure. But it's not going to do you any favors falling asleep. So let's take all the, let's do a little gathering of all our little worries or anxieties or stuff gathered all up i've somehow while we, while i was talking they use the magical part of this podcast to seal all that stuff up in walnuts just like rickon and bran if you watch game of thrones rickon has a thing for walnuts so we've captured all that stuff in walnuts they're sealed in walnuts you're gathering them and there might be a couple missing so let's hunt those down close your eyes and breathe I believe there's a walnut to the right of your left toe or to the left of your right toe or both. Okay, go get those. Okay, we're going to gather them. We're going to place them in this hunter-gatherer type basket. Beautiful basket. Woven. There's myths in there about dreams and restfulness. And you're going to put all those things in there. All your concerns. All your uh, instincts for, you know, flight Right, flight, f- fright, and flight. Wait, did I say I said something twice, didn't I? But whatever, fight, fright, and flight, maybe. They're all in there. In the morning, we're going to put them at the foot of your bed. You know, if, if you're feeling a little agitated, go ahead and dump them around. And they're magical acorns. They're going to roll into a place where you won't trip on them. But yeah, they'll be there tomorrow. We'll deal with those acorns. Oh, wait, they were walnuts power of uh, podcast, you know, I, I think I drifted off there. So it's a couple times during that fight or flight and then during the acorn walnut mix up. So that's it. They'll be there in the morning. That's what this podcast does. Um, you know, it like that, but I just talk about Game of Drones in a similar fashion that I just talked about. Nuts. I'm nuts. Okay, that's it. Uh, we're on the web at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes, as the general knows, are at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Watch Drones. 
If you want to get a hold of me, it's feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can get me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter, uh, on Facebook at uh, Sleep With Me Podcast. You can comment on the website. Love to hear from you. If you have a chance and you're feeling uh, extra generous uh, and you want to help the podcast out, join our one listener initiative. The way you join it is you tell one person about the podcast. You say, hey, you having trouble sleeping? I see you over on uh, this forum or wherever, you know, human-to-human contact, whatever it is. Tell them about the podcast or talk about your experiences with the podcast on uh, iTunes Review. That's it. And now let's get on to the thank yous and then on to Game of Drones. Thanks, and I hope I help you fall asleep. Hey, guys, it's me praying in. Maiden, hope you didn't hear any of the songs I've been singing. Crone, Sweet Crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester. I'm on the uh, wild horses of gratitude still, riding across the plains of thankfulness. It's the holiday season here on Earth. I don't know, in Westeros. If you have the equivalent, you know, you call it like the Walnut Festival or the um, procurement of the maiden's womb. Or I don't know, gods. But I just want to tell you how thankful I am for this whole year. Uh, you know, other than the parts where you guys were going to give me the boots and you didn't do that. And, you know, hooking up with the maiden. Though that those things didn't happen this year. But everything else is I'm thankful for. But I guess that's more of a New Year's thing, gods. I don't... Well, you guys probably call it the uh, fresh year or the new moon. I don't know. But I want to th- say thank you, gods. Chris Posty's poster sent on the music. Postal. Sounds like an earful.com. I got Scotty, Bobati, Banana, Fana, Sir Scotty, and Jennifer on the icons and the artwork. My brother Ken on the Game of Drones feed artwork. I got the Lord and the Lady, the defenestrator, looking out for... Uh, you know, royal, the royal stuff. We got the new, new folks on the podcast train, uh, all the people that have been on it, but you know, the, you know, the nicknamed by the, the funder from down under and the silver tone. We got baronesses, we got generals, we got divines, we got it all. And, uh, but, but I want to get down to some, some specifics, guys. I want to thank, uh, Semp3000, who says the podcast is as good as a NyQuil. And they say, God's maiden in particular, don't try to make sense of me. It's just, you know, just it's just the kind of thing that puts you to sleep, like a little little dose of magic, maiden. But, you know, I'll be more make-out magic with you. I want to thank my buddy Damon D. I don't have a nickname for him yet, but he's helping on the show notes. I've always wanted to say, I think on one of the Mark Wahlberg songs, he said, Donnie D on the backup. So I've always wanted to have a situation where I could say Donnie D on the backup. And that's the closest, you know, you got to take it. With, so Damon D on the backup, the, you know, show notes backup. I want to say hi to Mark, the energy smoking cigarettes guy. Uh, thanks, Mary, for something she sent me. I want to thank Wendy for Wendy. 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 Is this, does that sound like Wendy? Wendy. Anytime I say Wendy too much, it makes me think of... Uh, uh, Jack Torrance, Wendy. Uh, yeah, I don't maybe I have to delete that. Uh, for her comments, I want to th- say hi to Andy Tastic. Andy, you're, you're, you're Andy Tastic. Kiara, uh, if I hope I'm saying your name correctly because that just, 
I, I, I think I had a crush on a Kiara that was on a, either Australian or English. I think it was on a BBC uh, something. It was a, a um, some sort of a survivor knockoff. And it was the Kiara was on it for maybe three episodes, and I thought, you know, the stars were aligned for us. Turns out it's not, but it's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful name, Kiara. And if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, it's still a beautiful name. I'm just not a beautiful, you know, I'm an idiot. Zach S, thank you. Jennifer R uh, shared a, something on Facebook, thank you. Uh, I want to say thanks to Mokshagren. I, I think that's Mokshagren. Mokshagren. I like saying that. They gave it. He gave us a review a while ago. He's got a podcast that I've only had a chance to listen to a little bit of, but it's a, it's a music discovery podcast called Audio Bonsai. Uh, bonsai. Uh, and I listened to a little bit of it. At work today, and I'm going to listen to more, and I'll update you guys on that. But thank you, Maksha Grin, for uh, saying such nice stuff about the podcast. And that's it, guys, uh, for right now. Those are the people I'm thankful for, and everyone else out there listening. Thanks, you know, if I didn't mention you by name, it's because, uh, because you know, right? So that's the reason why. So thank you so much for uh, being here. And let's move. And God, thank you for uh, allowing me not to have boots or the maiden uh, this this year, twenty fourteen. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. So t- tonight we're talking about season two, episode seven, "A Man Without Honor." And immediately, the title makes me think of a song that's totally unrelated to that. Uh, I think I don't know if it's a replacement song or a Paul Westerberg song called "Men Without Ties." which I don't even know if that's a recorded song or if it's just a live song. It goes, uh, uh, it's like about being a single man. Uh, it goes, men without ties don't dress for dinner. And then Friday night frozen pizza thing. Don't want no something or no beginners. Yeah, sorry, I'm not Paul Westerberg. Uh, I'm your replacement. I'm, I'm not even his replacement, but it's a, you know, men without ties. It's a, you know, men, men without ties with, you know, ties, work business ties or ties, you know, like ties to you know, other humans. I don't know. Check it out. If you can find it, smoke it if you got it, as they say. But anyway, this is a, this isn't about ties. It is about a man without honor. Who's the man? Wrap your brain about that. It might be many men without honor in this world of Westeros. But uh, where we start, well, this is a, well, this is a, you know, this is a clue. Maybe we start with Theon asleep, and then the, there's a, you know, he realizes that Osha's escaped. He's like, get the horses and the hounds. I noticed they had square shields. I don't think I looked that up. And then he says to the maester, enjoying your first hunt, maester? He's like, no, I'm not. And he says, don't look so grim. It's just a game. I don't know if Theon really understands. Because, again, Theon's kind of adolescent intelligence, not in a negative way, just a fact. And then we got our walnuts. He says, a boy can't survive on walnuts. Osha says that to Bran and Rickon. 
And then they see this farm. They're like, I think this is what they said. Again, that's another thing I don't think I looked up. But they said, oh, is that where the Winterfell orphans live? Uh, Jack and Billy. Yeah, I don't know. I liked that. Then we're back at the north, the far north. And we got our cuddle buddies, our little cuddle buddies, John and Agreet. And she's talking about his erection. She's making jokes about him being a virgin, about having being aroused. Talks about um, uh, what was the impolite term is blue balls. She she talks about that. She talks. She says, uh, "Swollen? Don't they become swollen and bruised?" They, obviously, John was not in high school because he didn't learn. He didn't learn any of this stuff. She's like, okay, so you don't have any ladies. Do you just do it with the lads? He's like, no, 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 we don't do it with the lads. And then she's like, oh, so you have sheep. You do it with sheep. And he's like, no, 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 we don't do it with sheep either. And she's like, oh, with your hands? And no wonder you're so miserable. So it's interesting following her thoughts. And then there's a great exchange. She says, would you please shut up? Would you please shut up? They're like such, they're so, you know, like Ricky and Ozzy or um, whoever, you know, Lucy and um, I don't I don't know Tyne Daly or whoever Ricky and Lucy was that who it was I don't know. And then she says I'm a free woman. Don't you want to be free to make some sweet love, or some hot sex, and you know choose what you want to do. You're hot, you know she says you're hot stuff, man. I could find you a girlfriend. And then he says if you're my prisoner, you're not a free woman. She says you don't get it, Jon Snow. Then they're arguing about land rights. Then there's this beautiful shot of Harrenhal, which I haven't watched the extras yet, so I don't know too much about that. Then we have Tywin meeting with a man I believe was the mountain, uh, or a version of the mountain. And then they, he's talking about Wolfbane's poison. Ends up Tywin does not like mutton. So anybody Tywin fan club, take it off of the, uh, you know, if you're going to be, um, what's it called, uh, cosplaying as Tywin, you know, make sure you wear your I hate mutton bib. And then he says, you know, to Arya, eat, girl, sit down. And she says, well, you're small for your age. And they feed you. She's like, no, I just don't grow. I ate as much as I could. And then he gets all, uh, he gets all dreamy-eyed. He says, this is going to be my last war, win or lose. This is one I'm going to be remembered for. War of the Five Kings, my legacy. He starts talking about his this castle. He says, Heron the Black built this castle. He thought it would be his legacy. Turns out it was, but not in the way he thought. This was the greatest castle ever built. 35 hearths. You believe that? 35 fireplaces. He says that to Arya. It was built to withstand any attack by land. And then the dragons came, and then Arya's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, Aegon Targaryen. And she's like, well, what and his sisters do? Don't uh, Whitewash history, male. Uh, like even back in Westeros, us white males are just making trouble, racing. You know, it's like she's like uh, his sisters were there, and actually his sister had a named sword, dude. So I don't know how uh, hot stuff Aegon was. And then she says, "Most girls are idiots." I think he said, "He said, well, you're not like most girls." She said, "Well, most girls are idiots." And then she says, he says, uh, he, she says, yes, my lord. And he says, me, lord. You know, you don't say it like a commoner. You know, if you're going to act like one, 
you know, you got to get it right. She says, my Lord, and she tries to cover it up, but I think he might be on to her. Then we're with Sansa and the Hound, and she's like, you know, you're, you're scary. He says, a dog doesn't need courage to scare off rats. She says, does it give you pleasure to scare people? He says, no, it gives me pleasure to kill people. Or joy, he says. No, it gives me joy to kill people. He says, you know, you don't understand what it means to be. He explains it to her. You'll see. And then we're with Khaleesi. And she's pissed. She's like, wants these dragons. She's like, they're they're like, Khaleesi, don't worry. We're going to get them back. She's like, there is no we. She's like, I don't care. I want my dragons back now. Then we're back with John and Agree. She's still talking this free. She says, we're free people. We chose Mance Raider in some sort of democratic process to lead us. And this is when she says, you know, I could teach you, John Snow. I could teach you about the birds and the bees. And she says, I know you know nothing, John Snow. I think something like that. Then we come to a camp on a river. We got Rob, Sir Alton with Jamie. Bruce Bolton's there giving a lot of looks about the way Rob's handling things. He's like, I, you know, Lady Talissa comes in, Bruce Bolton's rolling his eyes. She says she needs some yeah, egg yolks, some turpentine oil, or some, yeah, turpentine oil roses, milk of the poppy. He says, well, we're going to the crag for a surrender. Why don't you come along? You know, we'll write it off as a business expense. And we'll get, you know, get you what you need. Then we're back with Dion trying to play leader. He says it's better to be cruel than to be weak. And then his sidekick finds some walnut husks. So they're like, uh-oh. And we're back. Khaleesi's there with Khaleesi. Jorah comes back from somewhere. I don't know where he's been. But then it's like, he's like, oh, no, Khaleesi, I'm sorry I was gone. My place is by your side. And then she says, who is to be trusted and he says, and he says something about, uh, you got to trust me, Khaleesi. And there she says, there it is, trust me, and it's you. I should trust you, Sir Jorah. I don't need your trust. Or she says, she says I should trust you, Sir Jorah. Like, oh, you know, you're in love with me or whatever. I don't need trust. She says, he, she, he says, you're too young to give up on trust. She says, you're too familiar. You better, you know, we need to find some boundaries here, healthy boundaries. And then she says, find my friggin' dragons. He's like, okay, I will. Then we're back with uh, John and Agree. She, she says, when are we going to find your people? He says, oh, we're, we're almost there. She says, you're lying. And she keeps goading him on with the sex talk, distracting him. She won't tempting him. And she says, hey, this is, you know, it's going to be nice. I don't have, there's no teeth down there, John Snow. I don't know what they told you. And then he's like, wait a second, what do you mean there's no teeth down there? And then she bolts, he confu- she's confused by that. And then he realizes he's surrounded by her people. Then we go back to Sansa, she's having a nightmare and with the, the hound in it. And then uh, we wake. she wakes up and she's had her first uh, period. She's, she's blossomed into womanhood. And then she's trying to hide it because obviously that means she would have to have Joffrey's baby. Shay comes in. And then Shay's helping her cover up, and then someone else sees it. But Shay's got, Shay has Sansa's back, or tries to. But by the time Shay stops the other servant, the hound's already found everything, and he told Cersei. So then we have this 
wonderful, wonderful scene with Cersei and Sansa, wonderfully disturbing, uh, but beautiful. And Cersei says, uh, you know, she's having a, a, you know, a, a mother figure to daughter figure talk, and she's like, uh, you know, has your mother talked to you now that you've flowered? You're a woman now. Do you have any idea what that means? And Sansa's like, it means I'm fit to have children. And she's like, oh, that's something that once delighted you. The greatest honor a woman could ever have. And then uh, Cersei goes on to talk about, you know, the birth of her children and how Robert was off hunting and bringing her pelts, but how Jamie was there at her side, wouldn't let anyone stop her, how painful Joffrey's birth was. And she says, you may never love the king, but you'll love his children. And she says, I love his grace with all my heart. Sansa says that. And Cersei says, oh, how so very touching to hear. She almost has a, 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 a there's a little bit of a softness or a identification maybe with Cersei, with Sansa or something. But it's also like a, a, a mixed with hatred or, or self-revulsion or something. And she says, permit me to share with you some womanly advice. Oh, she says, permit me to share with you some women, womanly wisdom on this special day. The more people you love, the weaker you are. And then this music starts playing. And she says, love no one but your children. And Sansa's like, shouldn't, shouldn't I love Joffrey? She says, you can try, little dove. It's, all, it's like you can just sense it's so tragic, so beautifully tragic. Then we're uh, back at Rob's camp. We got Jamie there with his uh, Sir Alton or whatever that guy's name is. And Jamie's like, oh, Cinder, your mom's Cinder. Is she the fat one? And he's like, I don't know. Is my mom fat? I don't think so. And he's like, there's only one fat Lannister. If it was your mother, you'd know it. And then Jamie just plays his cousin, and we see that Jamie is truly a man. I mean, he's a man without honor, no doubt about it. But the way he plays him is deliciously evil. He says uh, they're talking about, um, he was talking about squiring for Jamie. And then Jamie uses that and talks about some squiring experience he had with uh, with that guy that got fired last season whose name I can't think of right now. And he says, it was like stepping, it's like stepping into a dream. That was like better than your life. And then Jamie's like, listen, man, I got to tell you, I'm not suited for imprisonment. My life has left me uniquely unfit for restraint. And then he, he uses, you know, the cousin to help, you know, his escape. Then we're back, Jorah's meeting with this tattoo artist or henna artist with the mask. And he's like... And he's like, where are the dragons? She's like, do you love the Khaleesi? He's like, where are the dragons? And she says, will you betray the Khaleesi again? And because uh, the first, you know, his whole, he, he's already betrayed her once. And he says, never. And she says, the thief is with her right now. And he's like, well, that a lot of good that it does me. But then we cut to the Khaleesi. She's meeting with the 13. And she's like, without me, the dragons are going to die. And they're still playing this whole, oh, I don't know, Khaleesi. And she's like, who has the dragons? And then the uh, wizard guy's like, the king of Karth, I have them. The king of Karth uh, procured them for me. Everybody's like, 
What? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, no, that, uh, the guy that's been romancing the Khaleesi with the big vault, he's like, yeah, no, I'm the king of Karth now, and this is my sidekick, you know, uh, lizard face here with the blue lips. We got the dragons. They're like, what do you mean? And the guy from uh, Beetlejuice is like, uh, oh, we have an upstart and a charlatan. And Khaleesi's like, what do you mean you have my dragons? And the, the lizard, wizard, lizard, wizard, lizard-looking wizard. He's like, oh, they're back at the house and then dying. Why don't you go get them? And then all sorts of weird stuff happens. So Jorah comes and he's like, we got to get these dragons. And the wizards get all weird. And wizards are moving, you know, the wizard guy's moving around. Then we cut back. Jamie's escaped and gotten caught by the car Starks. And so he had killed one of the car Stark kids during his escape. The father wants vengeance. Cat's like, hold on, you can't, you know, this guy... What kind of, you know, what kind of car Stark are you? Isn't that a pseudo Stark? Cat's trying to make the peace. Then we have another wonderful scene of uh, Cersei lighting candles. She's with her brother Tyrion. He's like, Stannis has got 200 ships. He'll be here in four or five days. Cersei's like, don't worry, we're going to rain fire down up upon them. Or we're going to rain fire on them from above. And what is, what, Tyrion's like, what are you quoting, father? And Cersei's like, he has a good mind for strategy. He goes, it's tactics, not strategy. That's what we call it. A little bit uh, talking down to her. And he's like, sadly, dad's not here. It's just me, you, and Joff, uh, the, the Mad King. A different kind of mad than the last Mad King. And Cersei's like, you're going to make a point eventually. Why don't you get around to it? And Tyrion says, it's hard to put a leash on a dog which you, once you've put a crown on its head. And this becomes too much for Cersei, maybe. Is is she? Is it really too much for her? I think this is a, a genuine expression of emotion, but I'm not positive. And she says, maybe this is a price for my sins, for being with my brother. And she gets upset, and Tyrion's like, well, this has been going on. This is the way they've always done it. And she's like, well, this, I don't know. Maybe this is some punishment. And she cries, and Tyrion is just like every guy, near crying woman. He's got that look on his face like, oh boy. And then he's got this double duty. It's his sister who hates him, and he's still trying to be like, I don't know, how do I handle this? Is a, no one ever tell me to ha- how to handle this situation. And then we're back at the camp, Rob's camp. You can tell there's trouble brewing. They're going to take Jamie out. Uh, Lady Catelyn's like, no way. She's like, let me meet with... Uh, Meet with Jamie, you know, leave us alone. And then Jamie, he's just, he's just such a dirtbag. He's like, is that a, as soon as he sees Brienne, it's funny stuff, but dirtbaggy stuff. He goes, is that a woman? I mean, he's delivered with uh, such, he he's plays such a brilliant scumbag. Is that a woman? And then Catelyn's like, you're no knight. And Jamie says, oh, well, you know, so many vows. You know, no matter where you turn, there's a different vow that you're forsaking one for another. And then again, 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 he tries to make this uh, salient point. And then he says, where did you find this beast? He still can't leave Brianna Tarth alone. He also talks, interesting, I think this was the scene where he says that Cersei's the only woman he's ever been with, which I thought was told a lot, a lot about him. Uh, as confident and brash as he is, he's a guy that's only slept with his sister and the main king he was supposed to watch over, he backstabbed. And then finally Kat has enough. She says, you are a man without honor. 
And then we cut to, again, just like at the opening, we cut to uh, to Theon making a speech as the new lord and how, you know, this is the punishment for his rule and this is how he does things. And we see that he's he's definitely a man without honor for sure. Uh, And that's the end of the episode, all right? All right, so as I said, there was this beautiful image at Hall, the castle. Um, so I want to talk about that and the hair in the black. Hall, according to uh, a wiki of Ice and Fire, is uh, the largest castle in the Seven Kingdoms, the seat of, uh, well, I don't know who, who's the seat is now, uh, but since the war of the complex, con- uh, but since the War of the Conquest, it's been a dark and ruinous place. Now, the layout. The castle has five towers of dizzying side with equally monstrous curtain walls. The walls are incredibly thick, and the room's built on a scale that would be more comfortable for giants than humans. The castle's holdings are some of the richest in Westeros. There's vast tracts of green, fertile land. Hall covers three times as much ground as Winterfell, and its buildings are so much larger that it can scarcely be compared. Its stables could house a thousand horses, its godswood, twenty acres, its kitchen, kitchens as large as Winterfell, Winterfell's Great Hall. When it was built, it could have potentially garrisoned a million men. However, it has gone into decay. Uh, and, you know, bat, it's got bats and all that. Uh, walls and towers. Hall is built on a gigantic scale, colossal curtain walls, sheer as mountain cliffs atop. While atop the battlements, there's wooden iron scorpions that seem small as their namesakes when seen from the ground. Hall's gatehouse is as large as Winterfell's great keep. Stone is discolored and fissured. Outside the gatehouse, only the tops of the five immense towers can be seen because of the height of the walls that obscure them. Of the castle's five towers, the shortest is half again as high. It's half again as high as the tallest one in Winterfell. Yet none of the pro- towers are proper, being bent, lumped, and cracked from the melting of the stone by the dragons. The five towers: there's the Tower of Dread, the Widow's Tower, the Wailing Tower, the Tower of Ghosts, and the Kingspire Tower. Uh, known gates. Uh, that's about it. Miscellaneous, uh, the Hall of a Hundred Hearths is the castle's great hall. It has 34, 35 hearths. It is said to be able to entertain an army. It's got smooth floors, uh, slate floors. It's got the kitchens. We talked about the barracks. Hall is above the armory. That's where the men can take their meals. The armory has a forge. It's got a big godswood. It's got everything. Now, what about this heron, the black? Uh, same uh, wiki of ice and fire. Heron Hoare, H-O-A-R-E, or also known as Heron the Black or Black Heron, was the last of the king of the isles and rivers to rule over the Iron Islands. There's those Iron Islands again causing trouble. And the Riverlands. And he was the last member of House Hoare to rule. He completed the Grand Castle Heron Hall, which would serve to be his doom. He was born in a house whore. He was, uh, his grandfather extended the ironborn rule over the riverlands from the neck to Blackwater's Rush. 
During his reign, he was a, a vain tyrant and hated by those he ruled. His brother had like a modest tower at Fair Market, but Heron, he wanted something better. So he commanded the construction of a grand castle, Heron Hall, a project that took 40 years, three generations to complete. The Riverlands were drained to finance the building, with thousands of captives having to work on it and, uh, you know, the raw materials. Weirwoods, the holy trees, were cut down to provide rafters and beams. Heron finally completed his grand hassle of Hall when Aegon the Conqueror landed in Westeros. Aegon was victorious over Heron's men in the Battle of Reeds, but two of Heron's, Heron's sons were victorious at the Wailing Widow, Willows. While they were returning, oh, I'll leave it there. While they were returning to uh, Hall, though, they got taken out by one of the dragons. Heron's tyrannical rule over the Riverlands earned him very little love from his lords. As Aegon advanced, many of the river lords, led by Lord Edmund Tully, revolted against, uh, I think, Edmure's. Oh, wait, that's Cat. I think Cat's. Uh, I don't know if that's her dad or somebody bef- after before her dad. Uh, they revolted against Heron, though, to support the Targaryen invader and join the Conqueror's host. Heron took refuge in the well-stocked Heron Hall, largest castle, rejected uh, the offer Aegon made of retaining Heron Hall in return for becoming Aegon's vassal. I don't know what this guy's thinking. Aegon's dragons, who were not obstructed by the walls, you know, took him out with fire. It rained fire from above. And that was the end of Harrenhal. The guy thought he was all safe up, you know, snug in his bug or whatever, and he was not. Maybe, you know, why well, he could have made peace. I don't know. That guy sounded like a jerk anyway. So that's Heron and Harrenhal. Walnuts, we've talked about him before, and we're talking about him again with the frickin', uh, what the heck's that kid's name? Not uh, Bran and Rickon with the Walnuts. Now he, you know, walnuts end up having some uh, negative effects on other people. But uh, other than being irritating to me, but I, then uh, OSHA was also like, uh, "Boy can't survive on walnuts." It made me think. I remember talking about walnuts. I don't remember anything, anything that I said. I didn't retain any of it. But how many calories are on walnuts? Can't not that a boy could survive on it or, or a human. But how many? You know, what's a calorie? Well, let's look some stuff up. So there's a nice thing in the show notes from the kitchen.com, uh, K-I-T-C-H-N.com, uh, which just has a visual guide to 100 calories and nuts. But it looks like, uh, uh, I'll put that in show notes. I don't think they had walnuts there, but I just thought it was nice. Uh, shows a little, little handfuls. But it went over, I went back to, of course, the uh, whfoods.com, world's healthiest foods, uh, uh, from the uh, George Mat- Matajan Foundation. And they have the last write-up on walnuts. But let's just run through, uh, according to the WH Foods, uh, walnuts, like 0.25 of a cup, a quarter of a cup or 30 is 30 grams. And if it's half, just in the 30 grams of walnuts, there's 4 grams of protein, 4.57 which is 9% of your daily thing, Four, 4.1 grams of carb, carbohydrates, which is 2%, 19 grams of fat, which it's a, some sort of healthy fat, I think. Uh, it's got 2 grams of fiber, 
and that has 196 calories, which is pretty good um, for just 0.25 of a cup of, I'm sure it's shelled walnuts. And then it's got a bunch of other vitamins. So uh, that's good. That uh, So the fact is that while they can probably leave, live on walnuts alone, the fact that the, the walnuts would be a good choice as far as uh, – uh, you know, for a growing boy of Rickon's age, it's got plenty of stuff to help him grow up to be strong and, you know, seek out, uh, you know, a mission in life or whatever he's going to do. And probably if he's more healthy, he is, hopefully the less irritating he'll be with the cracking of the walnuts and, you know, leaving walnut shells around. But again, his mom's out, his mom's out gallivanting, his dad's out, um, you know, uh, being was was out being subservient, so uh, you know he doesn't exactly. He needs some uh, his brothers, uh, you know, flirting instead of battling. His other brothers out uh, not flirting when he should be flirting. And his sister, she's, his sisters both got a lot on their plate. So uh, yeah. I don't know. Part of me wants to feel bad for Rickon, and part of me just wants to say, stop it with the walnuts. Stop it. Please, Rickon. So that's Rickon, that's walnuts, and that's my you know judgmental side coming out. So Arya had a lot to say when, when uh, Tywin was talking about how Heron the Black got taken out by Aegon Targaryen. She was like, oh, no, 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 he got taken out by Aegon and his sisters, so just slow your roll there, Tywin. So I was like, okay, let's learn a little bit more about these Targaryen sisters. And, of course, the names are going to be hard for me to pronounce. So I hopped over to uh, Game of Thrones Wiki over at GameofThronesWiki.com for this info. Uh, Rhaenys, R-H-A-E-N-Y-S. Rhaenys, Rhaenys Targaryen, she was a sister of Aegon. Uh, Rhaenys Targaryen is an unseen character mentioned. She lived and died centuries before the show and is not expected to appear. She was a sister and wife of Aegon the Conqueror and helped him in the evasion and conquest of Westeros 300 years before what we're doing now. Uh, Rhaenys and her sister were the first queen's of Andals and the first men. Rhaenys. Rhaenys, it says. Rhaenys. Okay. Well, that, that, that came in a little bit late before I embarrassed myself. But uh, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen named his daughter in her honor. Rhaenys was uh, the sister of Aegon and Visenya and was born on Dragonstone, the Targaryen stronghold in the Narrow Sea. Following Valerian custom, she and Visenya both married Aegon. All three rode dragons. Rhaenys, Rhaenys, Rhaenys rode the one named Meraxes. During the War of the Conquest, she rode her dragon at the Field of Fire, where they destroyed the largest army ever fielded against troops and broke the back of the resistance to their rule in Westeros. So that's Rhaenys. Then we have Visenya. I may be pronouncing that wrong, too. And here's uh, Arya's quote. It wasn't just Aegon riding his dragon. It was Rhaenys and Visenya too. Rhaenys rode Meraxes. Visenius, Visenya rode Vagar. Visenya Targaryen was a great warrior. 
She had a Valerian steel sword she called Dark Sister. Pretty cool, Tywin. Nice job, you know, masculizing, you know, history. Visenya Targaryen, according to Game of Thrones Wiki.com, is an unseen character. She lived and died. She was a sister wife of Aegon the Conqueror. And she was born on Dragonstone, just like custom. She wrote, you know, married her brother. But she had this, you know, steel blade called Dark Sister. Harrenhal was burned by Dragonfire during the War of Conquest. All three dragons later deployed at the Field of Fire, where they got the, took that army out. Visenya was the uh, mother of Magor Targaryen, known as Magor the Cruel, the third king of the Iron Throne. But he died without any having children, so all subsequent Targaryen rulers, including Arcolisi, Daenerys, claim their descent from Visenya's sister, Rhaenys. So that's the uh, t- so that's a little info on the Targaryen sisters. Theon sends out the hounds on this one to try to f- find uh, Bran and Rickon and Osha and Hodor, Hodor, and. Uh, I don't know. I think they were on the scent of their their human scent and not the walnut. They weren't tracking walnuts, but it always made, it made me say, well, you know, what, a, what, what's up with these hounds? Let me look into that, right? Jeez, my neighbor's freaking pounding around up there. It made me think, you know, what's up with these hounds? So I looked it up on an uh, episode from uh, PBS.org, an uh, na- episode of Nature from June 9th, 2008, called Underdogs. It's called The Bloodhound's Amazing Sense of Smell. Who wrote this, though? I don't, I don't see an author, but uh, it's a, it talks about Holly, who was one of the brightest and best detectives in the Massachusetts State Police Force. She's an expert in her ability to assemble clues while tracking missing persons or hunting down criminals. How did she get to be so good at her job? That's easy. Punchline, she works like a dog. And as they, as they show in this episode of Nature's Underdogs, Holly's a bloodhound. She was once uh, slated to be put to sleep or sent to the farm in her youth. She was so uh, destructive, nobody could manage her as a pet. She got passed from home, oh, poor Holly, six times before her first birthday. Wow, what a, what a naughty little girl you were, Holly. And she had, you know, little prospect of making it to adolescence. But then someone entered her life that sensed that behind Holly's troubled eyes was an animal with phenomenal natural abilities. For the past 25 years, Larry Allen, a member of Barber County Tactical Search and Recovery Teams in West Virginia, has been training bloodhounds for law enforcement across the country. Rescuing problem dogs like Holly, he works out their issues so that they can achieve their full potential as gainfully employed trackers. Uh, I don't know. That's like a. It seems like a loaded achieve their full potential as a game. Why can't why do dogs have to? I don't know. No need for me to project. But Alan insists that training is a relatively small part of what makes these dogs so good at what they do. The working ability of a bloodhound is 70% nature, 75% nature, and 25% nurture, he says. And the nature part of the equation resides in the animal's exquisitely designed nose. Often called a nose with a dog attached, the bloodhound is so adept at scent tracking its trailing results 
are admissible as evidence in court. Holly is a, you know, they say olfactory sleuth. I like that. With the Massachusetts State Police. And the dog's ability to read terrain with its nose is due to a large, ultra-sensitive set of scent membranes that allow the dog to distinguish smells at least a thousand times better than humans. thousand times, folks. Researchers have estimated that a bloodhound's nose consists of approximately 230 million olfactory cells, or scent receptors, 40 times the number in humans. Whereas our olfactory center is about the size of a postage stamp, a dog's can be as large as a handkerchief. I wonder if it's like a intestine or whatever, or something else like folded. Like it's that large, but it's like a little piece of skin folded in on themselves, like so it doesn't take up much real estate. I don't know. According to Alan, though, it's uh, the largest, one of the largest in dogs. The size of their olfactory area is bigger than other dogs, he says. And uh, that, combined with their desire to work, makes them a good tool. Uh, I don't know about that language either, buddy. These are dogs. When a bloodhound sniffs a scent article, like a piece of clothing or an item, air rushes through its nasal cavity and chemical vapors or odors lodge in the mucus and bombard the dog's scent receptors. Chemical signals are sent to the olfactory bulb, the part of the brain that analyzes smells, and an odor image is created. For the dog, this image is far more detailed than a photograph is for a human. Wow. Using the odor image as a reference, the bloodhound is able to locate a subject's trail, which is made up of chemical cocktail of scents, including breath, sweat vapor, and skin rafts. Old skin raft. I think that was my nickname once, skin raft. Hey, skin raft, what are you doing? Uh, that joke flopped. Once a bloodhound identifies a trail, it will divert its attention despite being assailed by a multitude of other odors. Only when the dog finds the source of the scent or reaches the end of the trail will it relent. As like in this, in the, in this episode of Game of Thrones. So potent is the drive to track. Bloodhounds have been known to stick to a trail for more than 130 miles. A bloodhound's outward appearance also adds to a tracking ability that loose, wrinkled skin, trapped scent particles, its long ears drag on the ground and collect odors, sweep them into the nostril area, its long neck, muscular shoulders, slope in the back. It's like these things were born to smell. For past two centuries, these detectives have proven legendary in law enforcement. The greatest sleuth in canine history possibly is Kentucky Bloodhound named Nick Carter. Wait, is that the same Nick Carter? Wasn't Nick Carter in a boy band? Maybe the same one as uh, Joey Fatone. Uh, his dogged uh, persistence led to the capture of 600 criminals. Um, my um, aside, only 599 of those were uh, later released due to uh, being set up. I'm just kidding. Uh, despite technological advances of our current age, many experts agree that these canines are a greater asset to the police force than some of the best high-tech surveillance equipment. This extraordinary ability to discern a cold trail has sent them on fruitful missions. This extraordinary ability to discern a cold trail has sent them on fruitful missions, following tracks over 300 hours old. But there's more than 
more to becoming a good police dog than simply an acute sense of smell. The dog must also have a predisposition to working with a handler, be eager to please, and have a strong play drive. Bloodhound's makeup, you know, enables it to track like another dog. Such skills are the gift of nature. However, says Aiden Woodard, Woodward. However, says Aiden Woodard. So, however, says Aiden Woodward, the associate producer of Underdogs, without discipline and focused assistance of a trainer, it, uh, the bloodhounds might not reach their potential. Alan, back to the guy, the story here about the guy taking the dog that nobody loved. Alan was able to provide the gentle discipline Holly needed, even though he had initially even had doubts. The first time I saw Holly, all I could think was, I'm going to make this puppy into a working dog in 12 weeks. Little did I know she would develop a love for the game in two weeks and go on to be one of the best trainees he's ever had. The more he worked with her, the more solid she became, and the more she became my partner. After 12 weeks of training, Holly had polished her natural skills as a tracking dog and was ready to begin her new career. Partnering, parting with Holly was very difficult, Alan admits, compared to having her child get married and move to the other side of the world the next day. But he's thoroughly proud of all she's accomplished. The best part of working with a trainer, as a trainer with these dogs, is uh, watching them develop skills and confidence in themselves, offers Alan. The ultimate reward is having a dog... You're, you've trained, become involved in saving a person's life or tracking down a criminal. As for Holly, she's been given a second chance and a fresh start. What could be more rewarding than that? So it's a nice little story about Holly and bloodhounds. And it might be, I haven't watched the show, but it might be worth checking out. So that'll be in the show notes. Uh, another quick thing I looked up my Game of Thrones wikia was uh, Rob says he's going off to surrender at the crag. And I was like, what the heck is that? I had to look that up. So surrender of the crag. The surrender of the crag is an event in the War of the Five Kings. Occurs off screen. The army of House Stark in the Westerlands. The army of House Stark in the Westerlands maintains its camp after the victory at the Battle of Yellow Fork while King Rob Stark travels to the crag with a small force to negotiate their surrender and take on supplies for his little lady friend. Having won victories in the Riverlands at the Battle of Oxcross, which we talked about, the Sack of Ashermark, and the Battle of the Yellow Fork, the army of House Stark under the command of King Rob has established a strong foothold in the Westerlands. The victory at Oxcross has left the region lightly defended. Rob takes his force to the crag. Maybe we should look up what the crag is, huh? King Rob Stark leads part of his force to the crag to negotiate the center uh, surrender of the House Westerling, a proud but impoverished vassal house of House Lannister. He also brings along battlefield surgeon Talissa Mager, who uses the opportunity, you know, to get some supplies. Okay, so what's the crag? Let's just look that up. The crag is a stronghold used by House Westerling, a vassal house. It's run down and partially ruined. No wonder they call it a crag. Uh, as the Westerlings, though an ancient house with the blood of the first men, they've fallen on hard times, can't afford to maintain it. 
The castle is located northeast of Casterly Rock, overlooking the sea in the west coast of the west of Westeros. And let's look at these battles they're talking about. Battle of the Yellow Fork. The Battle of the Yellow Fork is a minor engagement in the War of the Five Queen Kings. The army of the House Stark and the Westerlands move west from Oxcross to attack a force of House Lannister conscript at the Yellow Fork. Uh, after they won victories at the Oxcross, they pushed further into the Westerlands, uh, lightly defended. King's Rob's forces, you know, go after the, them at the Yellow Fork, win a victory. They take on many prisoners. Richard Carstark, who comes up in this episode, reports on they have so many prisoners that their cells are overflowing. That's when Roose Bolton's, you know, rolling his eyes. So that's the Battle of the Yellow Fork. What about the Sack of Ashermark? Ashmark. Another event following the liberation of the, much of the Riverlands from the Lannister occupation. Uh, they invade the Westerlands, supplying, you know, the Battle of Oxcross with the bulk of Lannister forces at Harrenhal and the remnants of Jamie Lannister's army scattered. The Westerlands are def- defenseless. Following the victory at Oxcross, the Northern Army sacks Ashermark, the seat of House Marbrand. And then they push into the Battle of the Yellow Fork. House Marbrand, let's just look that up for, you know, complete sake. They're just a vassal house. They hold fealty to House Lannister. Their lands are in a hilly area where the tumblestone begins and their castle is called Ashmark. Their head of their family builds it bears the title Lord of Ashmark. The current head was a guy named Damon Marbrand. So that might be our new our buddy Damon's new nickname. All right, thank you. So well, something some about this episode made me think of uh, maternal instinct because the Khaleesi has this, like, so maybe a maternal instinct for her dragons because she considers them her dragons. She's protective of them. And then Cersei had some has some sort of relationship with Sansa, uh, you know, becoming a woman. They're talking about childbirth. They're talking about having children. They're talking about her body being ready to have children um, on, on at least a physical sense and what it means to be a, a woman in, in Cersei's view and, you know, the, the, the tragedy of it all in some sense to her or not. I don't know. But it made me think of like this maternal instinct. Is Cersei's instinct to Sansa, Sansa, uh, like I changed that name for me, uh, you know, is it maternal or is it like a reflection, you know, some sort of projection? And then what about, so I was like, uh, I did some research. I don't even know if this answers the question, but it's over at psychologytoday.com. And it's from a, a series of articles called Kith and Kin by Jillian Ragsdale, Ph.D. And this article is called The Maternal Myth. It's from December 18th, 2013. Uh, Again, Jillian Ragsdale, Ph.D. And I'll try to read it and quote it or whatever. I'm going to quote directly from that. Surely all women must have a maternal instinct or the human race would die out. We're all mammals. And all other female mammals seem to have one. Maternal instincts and breasts. Surely that's what it means to be a mammal. 
Some women don't seem very interested in having babies, but that can't be normal, can it? Let's look at the term instinct. 1961 edited volume, Instinct, laid down some defining guidelines. To qualify as an instinct, the behavior should be automatic, irresistible, and triggered by something in the environment, occur at some particular time during development, require no training, be unmodifiable, and occur in all individuals of the species. The problem with these criteria is that not even the universal instinct to eat when hungry doesn't fit well. Compared to other animals, my cat, for example, is not automatic and irresistible. I have to physically restrain my cat from drinking my daughter's milk, and I don't think he could ever decide to go on a diet. So few, if any, human behaviors qualified as instincts. So few, if any, human, in, human behaviors qualified as instincts that psychologists replace the term with drives. The idea is that we have a set of innate drives that push our behavior in preset directions. Drives are not drives are not unmodifiable or even irresistible like instincts, but they are innate. They are not learned, and with occasional exceptions, are they are universal. We all have them. Drives motivate us to do stuff so that we don't just sit around and die. I'm sure we've all experienced the inner battle that ensues when we need to do something but have no motivation. Some drives clearly help us, and it is not difficult to see how they could have evolved. A rat treated so that it loses a normal dopamine response in the brain that triggers motivation will sit in front of a pile of food and starve because it no longer wants to eat. They don't tend to want sex much either. An animal that doesn't want food or sex is definitely an evolutionary cul-de-sac. But what about an animal that doesn't want to have babies? As long as they keep having sex, babies will come along. They don't need to be interested until then. And for most of human history, that was our situation. Women didn't want to have a baby. Women didn't want to have a baby as long as they wanted sex, or sadly, as long as they had sex, whether they wanted to or not. In general, people have sex just because they want to. That's the proximate reason. The ultimate reason is that people will have children and the human race will keep running. But securing the future of the human race is not usually the motivation for individuals to have sex. It doesn't have to be. It's a natural consequence of the proximate motivation. Although there are ancient records of family planning lessons, ranging from spermicidal half-lemon cap to the herbally induced abortions, it is only the last century that contraception has become widespread and reliable. A woman using contraception now has to stop and think, do I want to have a baby or not? For many women, this is similar to wondering whether you might like to see the film Motherhood. You read about it, and it could be interesting and entertaining, but you're not really sure if it's your kind of thing. You could be wasting time and money better spent saving for that trip around the world. A lot of people seem to like it, but you know one or two that didn't really, and some who had, who did, who and some of those who did have so little in common with you, their opinion hardly counts. And your partner doesn't seem too keen right now. He'd rather go bowling. Would you go on your own? In the end, it's just a movie. And that's, and all that's at risk is a few pounds and a few hours you'll never get back. But what if there's more at stake? What if you had to live that movie every day for the next 18 years at least? Who would buy a ticket to that level of commitment? The press is awash with warnings about delaying motherhood and the short 
and the short-sighted selfishness of career-hungry women who suddenly realize that motherhood is in its final week of release and it's now or never. The implication is that these women have been suppressing their maternal drives in pursuit of other rewards and pleasures or that they never had any maternal drive and just want to tick off having a baby from their lifetime achievement list. It's as if there are just two kinds of women, the kind that are born wanting a baby and the other kind that might or might not decide to have a baby depending on whether it is on their to-do list. Many women find the decision to have a baby agonizing because they think they should just know intuitively whether they want one or not. If they don't really feel driven, then maybe they are not cut out for motherhood. Talking to women of all ages soon reveals a wide range of interest levels when it comes to having a baby. Some recall wanting a baby when they themselves were still children. Others felt it from puberty. For many, the desire is not very strong as a young adult, but increases in their 30s and 40s, and some are just not interested. For many women who have children later, it's not that they have put off something that they wanted for a long time or that they are just having a child because the baby shop is closing. The urge to have a child is just not there earlier. Rather than a single all-purpose maternal instinct, women may be predisposed to a range of strategies and responses to circumstances. As a result, a mother's behavior depends not only on her situation when she becomes a mother, but also her life experience and that of her own mother. There are certain situations and experiences which can prime girls' maternal drive. Contact with babies can alter contact with babies can alter hormone levels in both sexes, but especially in girls. Cues about safety, social, and material support contribute toward turning up the maternal drive. Contribute toward turning the maternal drive up or down, and not necessarily as you might expect. The more important maternal behavior comes after the baby is born. Drives are not necessarily connected to pleasures. A mother can enjoy and love her child, whether or not as planned and vice versa. That is what makes the decision such an agonizing one for women who are not gripped by the urge but not immune from it either. So interesting uh, perspective. I like it. Um, very, very interesting perspective. Uh, I think the part that applies is the second to last paragraph to both Circe and to both Circe and Khaleesi. If you stretch it, uh, rather than a single all-purpose maternal instinct, women may be predisposed to a range of strategies and responses to circumstances. As a result, a mother's behavior not depends not only on her situation when she becomes a mother, but her life experience and her experience with her mother of which we know Cersei has almost none. And I don't think Khaleesi has any. Um, and those are the situations that prime uh, maternal drives and affect it. So, interest, so interesting, uh, the depths of the imagination of George R. R. Martin and just interesting the depths of, uh, of, like, of thinking about different, like, trying to fit evolution and whatever natural things are going on with our body within our circumstances and situations and the reality of life. And I'm glad people are writing about it. I want to uh, once again acknowledge uh, Jillian Ragsdale, who wrote this article. And uh, thank you for adding more enlightenment because this is one of those decisions that can get into that black and white territory. And it's really just a gray area of uh you know, everybody's got to figure out, you know, I don't know. All right, let's, let's just move on. Hello, hello. 
Good evening, this is Sir Tommen. Best friend of Sir Pounce, the cat, the greatest cat a man has ever known, a boy has ever known, and the best friend a boy could ever have. And I, hence therefore, are the best friend a cat could ever have, I, be I believe. Sir Pounce, correct? Okay. Yes, I think so. And, or did you say mostly? Sir Pounce is just looking at me. But I believe I am Sir Pounce's best friend, and I know he is my best friend. Uh, and only, you could still be the best friend a boy could ever have, even if the boy... If you have no friends, and a cat is your only friend. I, I, of course he's my best friend. Right, Sir Pounce. I do, but don't need any other friend. Anyway, I am here to update you on the adventures of Sir Pounce and Tommen, the, a boy and a cat who not only uh, love milk and yelling and playing and best-friending each other, but love justice in a sense of justice wronged probably by Joff, and setting it right in Sir Pounce and I have been investigating the young boy whose name, oh, he was a stable boy. Maybe that's, Sir Pounce, can you be named stable boy? The stable boy who now calls to me from the dungeon because Sir Pounce and I have discovered that since they kept moving my room to isolate me, from uh, windows and balconies and ways of leaving or doing things to embarrass mother, that uh, my room is directly above the dungeon. Now it's far down, far down. But a, this was once the laboratory for one of the mad maesters or something, and they had created a way to replace your chamber pot with a dungeon hole, I think they call it. And you go to the dungeon hole and you go, you uh, you, you do your business. Now, uh, Sir Pounce is afraid of the dungeon hole because he could fall in. But anyway, you could do your business there. And one time, I've, I've done it before, and uh, this time I heard, hey, hey, and I said, uh, so what's that noise? And it was like, it's me, boy, stable boy. And I said his name, I forgot it again. But he said, hey, it's me, the stable boy. And I see he calls to me like he's from there. And now he calls, hey, Tommen, uh, just calling in. I'm, uh, you know, he tells me his tale of innocence. And Mr. Pounce sits near close, close, not close enough to fall in. And we listen to him retell his, his, I guess, his side of the story. Because uh, what has happened is that Joff, and some people said that he and the milkmaid that was missing, they were in love. And then she said, you know that Joff, King Joffrey, so handsome. I love him. And even if he does not love me, that is who I love and not you, stable boy. And everyone says it. All the Lancel says he heard it. And the hound and all of Joff's, all these friends. He's got so many friends now. And they say, oh, there's two-bit Tommen or something. I don't know. But they, so I said, hey, you know, that's what Lancel says you uh, you got dumped. And then I say, here's another dump. 
And so Pound said, that's not nice. Right, full of rice. A bowl of rice? I uh, Anyway, so he says he never, he said, oh, no, no. They have the story all wrong, Tommen. He says he tells me, I've broke up with her, Tommen, and not even, we, we weren't even together. And I say, if you weren't together, well, you, he goes, well, we were together, you know, we're both there. You know, he goes, oh, yeah, Tommen, let me tell you. And Spout says, wah, 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 wah. And then I say, oh, no, no, Spout says, keep going, but not with that part. And he says, well, I, you know, he goes, I, I, you know, I work in the stables, Tom, and why would I limit myself to just girls? He says, I, you know, have lads come by to work for me. And, uh, you know, I have the animals to spend time with and girls. Girls seem to like me for I'm, I'm a, a stable boy. And there's something about the hay that makes, a, you know, a, a milkmaid. Or a kitchen, you know, scullery, something. They they love it, Tommen. And I say, love of what? What what was that about lads and 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 sheep? And he goes, in Tommen, man, of you, they've they've taught me with my hands. So now even my hands. So I have so many options, Tommen. And I say, options for what? And Sir Pound starts screaming, no, 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 no. He says, Tommen. And I said, well, what are your options? And he said, well, why would I just worry about her when I have, you know, any time I, you know, any urges I have, Tom, and don't you have those urges? And I say, Mother says all my urges are bad like me. And that, uh, you know, she doesn't know what went wrong with Joff, but something much different went wrong with me. And he says, uh, he giggled, I think. So I peed on him. And then he said, hey, I just a giggling because of the way you say it, your mother. He said, don't worry about it, Tom, and maybe you're too young to understand. And some of said, whoa, whoa. And he said, aren't we the same age, though, Tom? And then I said, I don't know. How old are you? And uh, Sir Pounce said he was going to jump in. I said, no, 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 Sir Pounce. I said, okay, I'll change this. So I said, he said, why don't you find out uh, who, who, uh, how, 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 why me? And he said, well, Lancel said you broke up with her. And he, he said, well, wait, how do they know she's missing? And I said, well, let me, let's, let's get on to this. So Pons and I, we start looking around and we realize, I ask around, well, Sir Pons asked around the cats and the rats and such things. And uh, it turns out that uh, a piece of a clothing a, a ribbon and a bowl, empty bowl of milk were found deep in the woods outside of, uh, out of you know, just outside the castle gates, I think, or something by Lintel Lannister. That's Lancel's younger brother, Lintel. And what happened is Lintel, we went and talked to Lintel. We said, hey, tell us about this. Uh, you found her ribbon. And, you know, we had him alone because the pound said, well, you know, get him alone. He, uh, so Pounce kept walking in circles. He said, what's wrong with your cat? I said, nothing. He's observing your body to see if you're being honest with us. And Lintel said, what are we, what are we? well? I said, tell me about your day. What happened the day you found this ribbon and bowl of milk? He said, well, Joff said, uh, let's have a, a milk drinking contest. And so we were drinking milk and Joff said, let's see who could drink milk more. But Joff was pretending to drink the milk or having the hound drink it. 
And then Joff said, let's drink chocolate milk. And it made my stomach. Uh, and then I was winning. I'm a, quite a drinker and I drink much more than Lancel or Joff. Or the, and, and I said to him, why wasn't I invited to this contest? And he just stared at me and he said, you're lactose intolerant. Don't you know that? And I said, I don't even know what that means. And he said, I've... And I, he said, so then I was doing so well, it must have made Joff angry. And he said, close your eyes, Lintel. And then he puts, he said, here's some fresh milk. And it was not fresh, it was sour. And I said, I cannot drink this. And he said, if you want to be the champ. So I drank it and I was so sick. And then I said, I need to use the vache. And, they, and then they locked me out of the castle. And I stumbled into the woods. I had to go number two at one and out my mouth all at the same time. And I stumbled deep in the woods and I was sick and I was I was seeing things and hearing noises. And, uh, and I said to him, well, why did you drink the milk? He said, well, the hound was going to beat me if I did not drink the sour milk. And I said, well, why didn't you not go right by the castle? He said, well, I was embarrassed because I was so sick. And I said, well, why didn't you go, uh, you know, just have a servant carry you? And he, I said, he said he did not think of that. And I, I said, well, tell us about it. And we went and we walked with him. And I said, this is very deep in the woods for just going to the party. And he said, well, it was an emergency. And I, and this is where I found it. Behind, and it was under a log. I said, that's strange. I said, what do you, I go show me the position. You were throwing up and pooping at the same time and peeing. And he said, I was. And I said, were you on all fours? And he said, no, then it would go on my legs. And I said, hmm, well, what's position? I can't understand this position. Why? And he said, well, I was using the log, you see. And then I said, but which direction were you facing? And he said, this is nonsense, Tom. And I said, it's not nonsense. And I tried to understand how he could be, he used the log with his back of his thighs and it made a lot, I said, you're brilliant. This is a perfect position to be in for a free action sickness. And I said, well, there's a pee is not sickness, I guess. The mother says it's sick when I pee in public. Do you have a pee in front of other people? And he said, you, you are a strange man, Tom, and you and your cat. And Sir Pounce went and stared at him like he was going to slash him. And he said, I'm sorry to your cat and to you, Tommen. And I said, do not be afraid. You know, Lintel, you're the, the lowest of the... You're not even as cool as Lancel, so anyway. And he said, uh, was, I said, but this is good, man. This, I'm going to put a log in my room, I think. And he, I will use it if I'm ever triple sick. And I said, but why, if you were facing, how did you find the bowl? And he said, well, the hound should. He said, I just found it, man. That's how I found it. And I said, well, Lintel, how did you know it was hers? And he said, well, I, uh, you know, showed it to one of the hounds, you, you know, the state, and they smelled in the stable and the milk, and they said it was his. And it's, you know, and I said, well, it's an interesting story. Run along, Lintel. And he, he and, I, and then I said, you know, actually don't run along. Take this log and carry back to my room. And he said, you can't order me around. I said, a matter of fact, I can because I'm higher than you. And I'll tell my mother, you, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you, you said to run around in the woods naked.
and uh, to scream like a girl. And she hates both those things. And then I'll pee and say, oh, Lintel dad, me too. And he picked up the log and brought it right to my room. And as I speak to you now, oh, wait a second. I forgot he's down there, but I'm using the log and it's quite comfortable. It makes it much easier to use the chamber hole, uh, dungeon hole, as they call it. And that's all. So that's me and Sir Pounce. We're figuring out this case. We're cracking the case, as they say, as Sir Pounce says. And Sir Pounce is nodding, and most of the credit I'm taking, but it was all Sir Pounce. He is my leader and my best friend, the best friend a boy could ever have, and I am Tommen, and I'm thanking you for allowing me to discover using a log to use the potty. The end. Good night. Yeah, hey, uh, it's time for my prayer in here. Hey, gods, it's me praying in. I just said that. If you're, you probably heard me. Uh, Jester, Marky, Miller Smith, Crone. Uh, praying in with an update on the uh, 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 operation Aristotle Stevens the Cat. If you want to update you guys, it's going. Um, Plans in, in, well, I guess it was in motion last time. Still in motion. Um, this serial guy is huge, gods. He's so popular. He uh, People are going nuts. They can't. Like, he'll go to a town. I mean, everybody shows up, even though they, they tell his story. Everybody's talking about it. They all want to know how it turns out. None of which I can tell you, because every town, you know, I'm always like, how's the story going to turn out? But um, my job, is, as we've talked about, is to dull the, dull the crowd down after it gets them all fired up. And uh, it's, it's going, uh, you know, I'm still doing the, still, yeah, I got a little bit of a, what do you call it, method or format. So I go out there. I pretend, well, I guess I'm not pretending. I do some jokes, but since I don't do jokes very good, it's almost like I'm pretending, but I'm trying for real and failing, which, you know, I might as well just say I'm pretending, but you know, gods, you know me. So I go out there, I get, you know, I get up on stage and say, hey, yo, how many people here are from the fingers? And then, you know, I say, uh, one, I count on my finger. I, I don't know. I'm a, maybe one, um, Jester, could you give me the power of joke writing? Because I, I just maybe it's a discipline, Jester. I don't know that I, I can't deliver, or maybe it's I guess it's not my job though, God. So then they throw the stuff at me. I say I just got in from Dragonstone, and boy, uh, do I hate Dragon. You know, has anybody had any book soup here? Do you guys have it on? You know, stuff like that, God's. And most people don't even get the jokes because, you know, local, you don't travel much. So you just hear a little bit rumors. And, you know, how about that Stannis Baratheon? And that'll be usually, it'll just be like that. Nothing. Um, unless we're like nearer or some people might have heard of them and they say, uh, or, they, you know. Anyway, not here that gets, I want you know, maybe... This is a learning opportunity, so I'll do. So then I, so this week I did that, and then uh, you know they say, "Ladies and gentlemen, Cat Stevens." And they throw all the stuff at me. Still, they still do that. That's good. Everybody is excited. Some people leave, but most people, you know, they're still like, "Well, you know, 
what do I got to go home to, you know, anyway? A bleak, bleak situation in Westeros a little bit. They don't have, because they don't have TVs or iPods or any other stuff I've left in trees for Barky that he hasn't returned. DVDs, cable, IPTV, whatever you want to call it. So they're like, might as well hang out and listen to this uh, Aristotle Stevens, a.k.a. The Cat. So the, so uh, this is my so this week I was like, hey, uh, thank you guys for uh, that, you know, coating me in this slimy, um, you know, mold juice, vegetable vegetables and fruits this week, huh? Thank you so much. The star fruit prickers will be with me for a couple of days, so thank you for that. And yeah, I smell. Uh, so you know, I want to share with you folks. I'm Aristotle Stevens, a.k.a. The Cat. I um, I sing and I learn, teach. Uh, and tonight I want to present you folks with a little knowledge. Uh, you know, I've been known for my soliloquies and my, uh, you know, my formalities. But tonight I want to drop some formal logic on you, like soliloquisms or some such thing, syllogisms. And you guys might, and again, guys, I'm just trying to get these people to sleep. It's like, a, you know, but, but, or calm at least so they don't, and so they pay their bills. Otherwise, the innkeeper just goes into their pocket while they're sleeping. All right. So, uh, and plus this is a whole plan, guys, in case you forgot. I know you're gods. You don't like being told, but reminded. But, you know, it's a whole plan is to get air. That's what the updates come at the end, okay? So anyway, folks, um, you know, a lot of you might, you know, how many how many people are married here? Is it, is it married? You know, how many are you married to your sisters? Do we have any Targaryens in the audience? And again, uh, I got hit with the last, I got the last remaining vegetables out, hit me in the face with one of them. Okay, well, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I, you know, I've been, I've been around the block, believe it or not. And there, sometimes there's hecklers, but usually they're, um, the catharsis has been so strong that they're, you know, out of juice. And I said, well, I want to, you know, I want to teach you guys a little bit about this logic. Now, how many of you know, you know, raise your hands, you know, if, if you don't need to throw anything. But I want to, you know, ask you guys, I want to explain to you, how many think this is true? Do all women have heads? And then someone says something about uh, one of the Starks or something, I don't know. And I say, okay, no, no. How many do all women that are alive have heads? And everyone says, well, I guess so, apparently. And people, you know, joke in or pretend to take off their heads, the funny stuff. Good humor in this part of Westeros. And I say, okay, why well, don't everybody tap your head with your hand here? I tap your head. How many? How many are all heads hard? Can we agree that all heads are hard? And you know, then people are. I was like, man, this is the best it's ever gone. People are bumping their heads on a table, bumping heads into each other. And I say, okay, I better dial it down maybe because the innkeeper is kind of giving me the uh, stink eye. And I said, so if uh, all women have heads and if all heads are hard or all women hard-headed and this got a you know, couple of guffaws and then a couple of women threw you know, the rest of their meal at me, biscuits and such, which I thought was a waste of food. But they must have been, you know, Merchants or something, and I say, okay, well, that's a that's a little logic, a lot, a little logic. Are all heads hard? All women have heads, therefore, hence, are all women hard headed or not? And I say, you know, technically, 
probably, yes, uh, on a physical level, but then there's a level of forms and ideals. So let me, let me, let's try another one out. What do you people think? At this point, you know, they're getting, you know, I'm losing them. God, you know, are you with me? Gods, gods. Okay, crone, crone. Oh, never mind. Okay, how many people, you know, have been to a, a like a, f- a festival or a fair? Most people didn't raise their hands, but other. Okay, Do, could, could we say that all dancers dance? Is that a, a part of their, you know, you know, thing? Or, 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 you know, who they are. If you're a dancer, do you dance? Do all dancers dance? Can we agree that that's true? Okay. Now, can we say that some dancers are fancy? Can we agree that some dancers are fancy? And they got some, you know, offensive stuff from the audience. I'm not going to repeat here, but it said, yeah, okay, well, some dancers are fancy. Maybe most, maybe, but not all, right? Can we agree that not all dancers are fancy? Okay. And if dancers dance and some dancers are fancy, and are some dancers smooth or, all, you know, and then I said, uh, you know, I started losing myself. I was like, okay, well, that's true. Uh, and uh, can we say that, you know, can we say that some dancers glide on the floor, the smooth dancers in particular? And people, okay, well. So all dancers dance, some dancers glide, some dancers are smooth, some dancers are fancy, some could be any. Uh, if I ask a dancer for an answer, what, 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 what will they say? And people are just like, I don't know, you know. And I say, well, why, you know, why do you dance? Because you're a dancer, all dancers dance is the answer, folks. Okay, let's me do this one's going to apply because we're getting ready. To give me a, the, 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 the double stink eye, which means finish it up, folks. Um, okay, can we agree you guys are here, everybody's here, even friends. Are some friends fine? Can, can we say that some friends are fine? Okay. Can we say that some friends are feathered? You know, birds. Some people are friends with birds. I know over in um, whatever that Pentos or whatever, Carth, Quarth. You know, they like birds there. Can we say that some friends are feathered? And I mean that in a metaphysical way, if I, you know, or whatever metaphysical means. You know, do people fancy, fine, feathered? Can we agree that some friends are fancy? Some friends are fine and some friends are feathered. Okay, so are all friends fine and feathered, therefore? And people are like, oh, what is this guy? You know, so when it comes time to pick, uh, who has a friend that is neither fine nor feathered? And they all point, you know, at one or two guys that, you know, are, are the low, you know, low guys on the totem pole. And they say, okay, well, what, what about the fine feathered friend? And then it comes time to pay your bill. Remember to tip your wait staff, folks. And they don't—I don't think they have tips in Westeros. So then um, I, say, you know, I say, you know, when it comes time to pay, doesn't is there one fine feathered friend that's like, oh, I know how to split. You know, you know what I'm talking about, folks. And they kind of one person was like, hey, I think so, and he points at uh, you know Lord Fancy Pants and whatever. And so then I say, okay, well, let me finish up here. Okay. You know, remember I said that, you know, or, or, do all women have heads? And we agreed for the most part, you know, technically, yes. And we also agree that all heads are hard, and therefore all women are hard-headed. 
And then again, the joke actually worked again. And I say, you know, not in that way because you guys are out of stuff to throw at me. But okay, now if so, do, do some women make you feel good? And then I get a, you know, a Molestown shout out, which was cool. And I go, well, you know, hubba, a couple of hubba hubbas and guys squeezing their, you know, it's the end of the night. And I say, uh, you know, do some women make you feel your best, make you do your best? And a couple guys that were legitimate, nice guys said, oh, yeah, you know, elbowing their lady. And it was nice. I said, okay, so is that a hard-headed woman that made you your best, that made you feel good? If some women make you feel good and all women are hard-headed, do all hard-headed women make you feel good? And again, that was over their heads. If they had them, boom. Um, and I said, well, okay. But a hard-headed woman makes you feel good and makes you do your best. Hence, therefore. Uh, um, so, and then it kind of just trailed off. That's usually how I do it. There's no end. Just kind of trails off like that, guys. I don't even know if you're with me, Jester Smith, but you know, you guys might be asleep too. But, um, you know, I scan the audience because I know that that was some stuff that was not interesting. And I see these two guys, eyes wide, wide open, four, you know, four total eyes, two sets. If, if, if men have eyes and eyes can be open and, and eyes, anyway, these guys were watching me and I'm positive that I'm not positive. If all Aristotle, well, no, not all Aristotle's, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's Cat Stevens and Aristotle, guys. I don't know. Um, so plan is probably if, – if most of my plans don't work – if all my plans are plans and most of my plans don't work, do all of my plans not work? That's not a logical – that's a logical fallacy, a f false logic situation. So um, if – so my plan may be working, therefore, because I found a hole in your argument. So that's it, guys. Um, Aristotle Stevens reporting out him with the serial, uh, serial, uh, you know, show. Well, I guess he said you're not part of my show. So technically, I go after the like I'm the follow up, the serial, serial that puts you to sleep, without being interesting or. Cliff, no cliffhangers here, gods. Well, there is because this is my plan going to work. Hey, most people, I don't care. That's what most of the, but you know. All right, so gods, thank you for this opportunity to, uh, um, uh, you know, if this is an opportunity, if, if if all gods offer opportunities, and you offer, I don't know, gods. I, my brain hurts, and I don't even. All right, good night.